0: Welcome to the Derek Izzy Show. I am the aforementioned host, Mr. Izzy, Moses Ronald, with the introduction there. Moses, thank you. You always do a great job for us. Thanks, boss. I'm really excited about today's show. Okay. Well, Moses, uh, why don't you tell us why you're excited about today's show? Because my friend Gary's going to be on the show today. Your friend Gary, huh? And how do you know this uh, Gary who's who's going to be on the show today? Well, we grew up together. I thought you grew up in Ohio. Um, the Gary on our show today did not grow up in Ohio. Yeah, but I grew up there too. Okay, you grew up there. All right, Moses, as usual, you are a... Wonderful contributor to the show. Thank you very much. Um, go ahead and have a seat. First thing, we have a fan listening to us out in Redlands, California. Happy 16th birthday to Lexi Lynn Fraser. She's a fan of the show. Has anyone ever heard of her? She plays lead guitar for a band called Micah. Micah is currently on tour Going around California, Nevada, Arizona, Texas, Oklahoma. Check them out. You can visit their website at www.reverbnation.com slash Micah Official. The band Micah spells their name M-Y-C-A-H. So reverbnation.com slash Micah Official. And you can check out, see where they're going to be. Maybe see him in person. Lexi, thanks for listening to the show. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. If you'd like to listen to your favorite books because you don't have time to read them, you need to use Audible. Just go to audibletrial.com Derek, and you will get a free one-month subscription, one free book download. As I've talked about on the show before, I used my subscription to listen to Adam Carolla's book, President Me. It was quite funny. It was about six hours long. I never would have actually read the book, but using Audible, I listened to it while I was driving in my car. You can download it to any mobile device, and you can listen to books at your leisure. Go to audibletrial.com for your free download podcast is also brought to you by the taxi services Uber and Lyft. You can enjoy one free ride with each of those applications. Just download them to your phone. For Uber, your free ride will get you $20 off. The code you need is 5LX9E. With the Lyft application, good for a free ride up to $10. Your code is Derek, D-E-R-E-K. Six zero five five zero three. And now, on to the topic of today's podcast. This information from Charles Montaldo, a crime expert. We know that the topic of today's podcast was born on February 18th, 1949, Salt Lake City, Utah. He was the middle son in his family. From a very early age... He had issues. When he was 11, the family moved from Utah to Washington State. He was a horrible student in school. His IQ was 82, and he was said to have suffered from dyslexia. Most of his teenage years were unremarkable until the age of 16, when he led a 6-year-old boy into the woods, then stabbed him through the ribs and into his liver. The boy survived and said, that the topic of today's podcast walked away laughing. He was married three times. In 1969, when he was 20, just out of high school, with no college in his future, he decided to join the Navy rather than get drafted. He married his first steady girlfriend, Claudia Barros, and then he headed off to Vietnam. He had an insatiable sex drive, spent a lot of time with prostitutes during his time in the military, he contracted gonorrhea, and although it angered him, it did not stop him from having unprotected sex with prostitutes. In less than a year, his marriage to his first wife had ended. In 1973, he married again, a woman named Marcia Winslow. They had a son together. During the marriage, our guy became a religious fanatic, proselytizing door to door reading the Bible aloud at work and at home, and insisting that his wife follow the strict preachings of the church pastor. Also during that time, he wanted his wife to participate in having sex outdoors and in inappropriate places, and he insisted on having sex several times a day. He also continued to pay prostitutes for sex throughout their marriage. His second wife, who suffered with a serious weight problem most of her life, decided to have gastric bypass surgery in the 1970s. She quickly lost weight, and for the first time in her life, men found her attractive. This made the topic of our podcast very jealous. He was insecure, and this led to a lot of fights between the couple. His wife struggled with accepting his relationship with his mother. The mother controlled the spending and made all the financial decisions for the family. She went as far as buying her son's clothing. Married man wears the clothes that his mother buys him. That's what we're dealing with here. His second wife resented this like crazy, but he would never stand up to his mother to defend his wife. He would always take his mother's side. After seven years, they divorced. He married a third time. This was a woman he met at Parents Without Partners, And they met in 1985. She found him to be very general, very responsible, and very structured. She appreciated that he'd worked at his job as a truck painter for 15 years, and he seemed like the perfect mate. Unlike previous wives, this third wife praised her mother-in-law for helping handle things that were difficult for her husband to handle. Things like the checking account, the family's finances... Decisions on making major purchases, she appreciated that the mother was involved in this. However, that would not last very long. On August 15, 1982, Robert Ainsworth stepped into his rubber raft and began his descent down the Green River toward the outer edge of Seattle's city limits. It was a trip he had made on many occasions, yet this time it would be different. As he drifted slowly downstream, he noticed a middle-aged balding man standing by the riverbank and a second younger man sitting in a nearby pickup truck. Ainsworth suspected that the men were out for a day's fishing. He asked the older man if he had caught anything. The man replied that he had not. The man standing then asked Ainsworth if he found anything, to which Ainsworth replied, "'Just this old single tree." Soon after, the two men left in the old pickup truck, and Ainsworth continued to float down the river. Moments later, he found himself surrounded by death. As he peered into the clear waters, his gaze was met by staring eyes. A young black woman's face was floating just beneath the surface of the water, her body swaying beneath her with the current. Believing it might be a mannequin, Ainsworth attempted to snag the figure with a pole accidentally the raft overturned as he tried to dislodge the figure from a rock and ainsworth fell into the river to his horror he realized that the figure was not a mannequin but a dead woman seconds later he saw another floating corpse of a half-nude black woman partially submerged in the water quickly ainsworth swam toward the riverbank where the truck stood earlier in shock he sat down and waited for help to arrive Within a half hour, he noticed a man with two children on bicycles. He stopped them, told them of his gruesome discovery, and asked them to get the police. Before long, a policeman arrived at the scene and questioned Ainsworth about his find. The officer disbelievingly walked into the shallow water and reached out toward the ghostly form. The officer immediately called for backup. Soon after, reinforcement arrived at the scene. Detectives sealed off the area and began a search for evidence. During the search, a detective made another discovery. He found a third body, that of a young girl who was partially clothed. Unlike the other two girls, this one was found in a grassy area less than 30 feet from where the other victims lay in the water. It was obvious that she had died from asphyxiation. The girl had a pair of blue pants knotted around her neck. She also showed signs of a struggle because she had bruises on her arms and legs. She was later identified as Opal Mills, age 16. It was believed that she had been murdered within 24 hours of her discovery. Just a month earlier, another young girl identified as Wendy Lee Caulfield was found strangled and floating in the Green River. Six months prior to Caulfield's discovery, the body of her friend, Leanne Wilcox, was found several miles from the Green River in an empty lot. A special task force was assembled of King County detectives to investigate the Green River murders. According to the Seattle Times, it was the largest police task force ever assembled since the Ted Bundy murders less than a decade earlier. The head of the Criminal Investigation Division and Detective Dave Reichert of the King County Major Crime Squad led the team. They enlisted the help of FBI serial killer profiler John Douglas and criminal investigator, Bob Keppel, who was known for his unique and successful approach of compiling evidence in the Ted Bundy case eight years earlier. The investigation got off to a shaky start because a massive influx of information swamped the police force within a relatively short period of time. They simply did not have the means to process the ever-increasing amount of data and evidence, and much of it was lost, misplaced, or overlooked entirely. In fact, the situation got so bad that at one point they enlisted the help of volunteers to assist the police in the ongoing investigation. Detectives learned that many of the murdered girls knew each other and shared a similar history of prostitution. Investigators decided to begin their search for the killer in an area where the girls were known to frequent. They conducted hundreds of interviews with many prostitutes who worked the main strip in Seattle stretching from South 139th Street to South 272nd Street. Investigators tried to obtain information on any suspicious characters they might have encountered. However, many of the girls were reluctant to talk because of their blatant mistrust for the police. One of the prostitutes who worked the strip filed a report with police, stating that a man who raped her made reference to the Green River Murders, Soon after the report, the task force began to search for the assailant. August 20th, 1982, the police announced they have someone in custody as a potential suspect. However, they were unable to find any plausible evidence connecting him with the crime. He was eventually released, and the search resumed for the killer. There were other prostitutes who filed reports that were of special concern to the task force. It was believed that the reports could be related to the Green River murders. Interviews taken by two separate prostitutes claimed that a man in a blue and white truck abducted them and attempted to kill them. According to one account by Susan Widmark, age 21, a middle-aged man in a blue and white truck solicited her. Once Widmark was in his truck, he pointed a pistol to her head and sped off toward the highway. He took her to a desolate road, turned off the engine, and proceeded to violently rape her. Following the rape, he allowed her to dress while he began to drive away from the scene with her still in the car. While driving, he made reference to the recent River Murders, while continuing to hold a gun to her head. Fearing for her life, she managed to escape from the vehicle while it was at a stoplight. Widmark was able to make out part of the registration number on the truck before the man sped away. A similar incident happened to Deborah Estes, age 15, who filed a report with police in late August 1982 concerning a rape. Estes told police she was walking down the highway when a man in a blue and white truck approached her and offered her a ride. She accepted and climbed into the vehicle. To her amazement, the man pulled out a pistol, pointed it at her head. He violently forced her to give him oral sex before releasing her into the woods, handcuffed. He then drove off. She immediately fled the scene looking for help. Seeing an emerging pattern that could have been related to the Green River murders, the task force decided to follow the lead and search for the truck and the driver. They hoped that new information concerning the man would lead them to a break in the case. That September, a meat butcher named Charles Clinton Clark was pulled over in his blue and white truck while driving along Seattle's main strip. After a background check was conducted, it was learned that Clark owned two handguns. Investigators believed that Clark might be the man they were looking for. They obtained his driver's license photo and showed it to both Widmark and Estes. Both women positively identified Clark as their attacker. Clark was arrested and his house and vehicle were searched. The police found the two handguns that were allegedly used in the assaults. After interrogation by police... Clark admitted to attacking the women. However, there was speculation as to whether he was the Green River killer because he was known to release his victims following an attack. Moreover, Clark had a solid alibi during the time many of the Green River victims disappeared. As Clark was booked on the rape charges, the murders continued. Detective Reichert, on a hunch, suspected that One of the volunteer civilians working on the case might actually be the Green River Killer. A 44-year-old out-of-work taxi driver became the focus of the investigation. The taxi driver seemed to fit the profile of the killer devised by the FBI agent John Douglas. According to Douglas, the Green River Killer was a confident yet impulsive middle-aged man who would most likely frequent the murder scenes in order to reenact the crimes in his mind. The killer was probably familiar with the area and was likely to have deep religious convictions. Douglas believed that he might have an active interest in police work, especially the investigation into the recent murders. The killer might even contact the police in an effort to assist in the ongoing investigation. Between September 1982 and April of 1983, approximately 14 girls had disappeared. Most of the girls ranging between ages of 15 and 23, were known prostitutes who frequented the Strip. The Green River Task Force's attention was temporarily drawn to one possible suspect, allegedly involved in the disappearance of the most recent girl to go missing, Marie Malvar. Malvar's boyfriend saw her talking with a potential customer in a dark-colored truck as she was soliciting on the Strip. The boyfriend claimed that he saw Malvar get into the truck before it sped away. According to the police, Malvar's boyfriend stated that he saw her and the unknown man in what seemed like an engaging argument. Suspicious of the driver of the truck, the boyfriend followed them. Before long, the truck gave chase and disappeared. Less than a week after the incident, he, along with Malvar's father and brother, spotted the suspicious truck near the place where he initially lost sight of it days earlier. They followed the truck to a house located on South 348th Street, and they called the police. The police eventually arrived at the house, and they spoke with the owner, Gary Ridgway, who denied having ever seen Malvar. Satisfied with his answer, the police left the residence and failed to pursue the matter any further. A similar truck to that owned by Gary Ridgway was also involved in the April disappearance of a young prostitute named Kimmy Pitzer. While in the process of turning a trick, Pitzer's pimp saw her getting into a dark green pickup truck with an attached camper. He described the driver of the vehicle as having a pockmarked face. He watched as the two drove off, and he never saw Pitzer again. He later informed police, but the information concerning Pitzer's disappearance and Malvar's was never fully connected. By the spring of 1983, the investigation into the Green River Killer and related murders was collapsing. The task force detectives realized that the probability of the taxi driver being the killer was low, yet they continued to keep him as a prime suspect. They had no new leads, and prostitutes continued to rapidly disappear throughout the city. Inundated with an avalanche of tips, the task force was unable to keep up with the massive influx of information. They enlisted the help of Bob Keppel, to help organize the mountain of information. Keppel spent three weeks putting together all the information during the investigation. To the task force's dismay, the report was highly critical of the ongoing investigation. Prostitutes continued to show up dead and go missing. On May 8, 1983, another body was discovered, later identified as Carol Ann Christensen, age 21. Her remains were found by a family hunting for mushrooms in a wooded area near Maple Valley. When Christensen's body was found, the killer displayed her corpse in an unusually gruesome way. She was found with her head covered by a brown paper bag. When it was removed, it was found that she had a fish carefully placed on top of her neck. The investigators said the killer also placed another fish on her left breast and a bottle between her legs. Her hands were placed crossed over her stomach, and freshly ground beef was placed on top of her left hand. Further examination revealed that she was strangled with a cord. She also showed signs of having been in the water at some point, even though the river was miles away. The task force speculated that she was yet another victim of the Green River Killer. During the spring and summer of 1983, nine more young women, many of whom were prostitutes, had disappeared. That summer, several more bodies were discovered. Between September and December of 1983, nine more women went missing and seven bodies were discovered, all of whom were believed to have been abducted and murdered by the Green River Killer. Over the next few months, the bodies of five more women were discovered. Before the end of that year, two more victims' bodies were found. As new investigators had joined the task force, Serial killer Ted Bundy came in to consult. Upon Ted Bundy's advice, no new information was found. From death row, Ted Bundy offered the advice that the killer likely disposed of even more bodies where the more recent bodies had been found. He also believed the disposal pattern of the bodies led closer to the killer's home with every kill. While interesting, this insight did nothing to help the investigation. Years went by, and the killer was still at large. According to the Seattle Times, in July of 1991, the task force was reduced to just one investigator named Tom Jensen. After nine years, roughly 49 victims and $15 million, the task force still had not caught the Green River Killer. The investigation became known as the country's largest unsolved murder case, and the case remained dormant for 10 years. In April of 2001, almost 20 years after the first known Green River murder, Detective Reichert, who had become the sheriff of King County, began renewed investigations into the murders. It was a case he refused to let go of, and he remained determined to find the killer. This time, the task force had technology on their side. Reichert formed a new task force team, initially consisting of six members, including DNA, forensics experts, and a couple of detectives. It wasn't long before the force grew to more than 30. DNA evidence is what proved key to solving this 20-year-old unsolved murder. Commercial truck painter Gary Ridgway, through DNA evidence, was now the prime suspect. Combining the DNA evidence with his confession, he was convicted of 48 murders, and confessed to or been suspected of dozens more. Several victims were dumped in or posed along the Green River. The Green River killer mystery had finally been solved after 20 years. Gary Ridgway was guilty. Evidence showed that Ridgway began each murder by picking up a woman, usually a prostitute. He sometimes showed the woman a picture of his son to help her trust him. But I'll let him explain his system of killing in his own words.
1: And it sounds to me like you had a series of of ruses that you had kind of in your hip pocket mm-hmm. that you would you would bring out and you would use to make you appear normal to some of these women. Mm-hmm. Um, and there had to be a way of you deciding, even though it was just like that, uh, which ruse would work with which woman. I mean, you had to have a way of feeling them out and um, saying, I think roost number one, two, three will work with this woman. How, how? Tell me, explain that process to
2: me. Well, one of them was, as you, as I, they would, a uh, woman would get in the car. She's already in she's the car? She's in the car. Say she's always in the car driving down the road and she, first she wants to see my ID. So I whipped out my ID and with my ID would be my, I'd put my finger over my driver's license to hide my name. But on the opposite side was um, pictures. And a picture of my son. And they would see, see my son and they would know I was a probably normal person.
1: But I you were really using
2: your son as part of your ruse. at the time I didn't want to picture my ex-wife there, so I had a picture of my son. Sure,
1: you had to you, you had to make it sound good.
2: I had a driver's license on one side, my ID, and then when I showed my and then the next payment, next picture was with my son. So that was. And uh, in the vehicle, I had some uh, always had some. Not always, but had some of my son's stuff in there, you know, um, that he left in there or something, Star Wars or something like that. You know, so there was was like a family setting. In your your vehicle. Yeah, so every time I opened up my wallet, there would be a picture of my son on one side, uh, you know, behind my ID. Here's my ID. I hide my name, Mm -hmm. flip it over, and there's my ID, and, uh, and my son's picture on the back side. And they'd see that, and that would uh, lower any big defenses. Mm-hmm. And you know, kids as toys, eight-year-old toys on the on the dash. Excuse
1: the only thing that would be better than that would be to have your son in the car with you. That that would be a, a, a incredible ruse.
2: Uh, that happened once. What happened? Uh, I was. July eighteenth, I think it was my brother's birthday. That weekend, I picked up a woman on back back highway, and Matthew was next to me in the seat. And she hopped in, and and I took her over to uh, in the south South Airport area, and um, took her. Uh, to an area, and uh, my son was there, and I, I killed her. I'm real sure my son didn't see it, but that only happened one time.
1: But that was a pretty good, pretty good ruse. Mm-hmm. So why didn't you do it again?
2: Well, well for one thing, the, um I didn't want to. Son, to see it, see that happen again, because I was, I was, uh, that's when I was really uh, killing a lot of them. And uh, another thing, it never came to an opportunity uh, uh, again to do it. I didn't, I mean, uh, I had him in my truck. One time he was sleeping, and I picked up another prostitute that didn't
0: date her. Gary was quoted as saying, I picked prostitutes as my victims because I hate most prostitutes, and I did not want to pay them for sex. I also picked them as victims because they were easy to pick up without being noticed. I knew they would not be reported missing right away, and might never be reported missing. I picked prostitutes because I thought I could kill as many of them as I wanted without getting caught. Another part of my plan was where I put the bodies of these women. Most of the time, I took the women's jewelry and their clothes to get rid of any evidence and make them harder to identify. I placed most of the bodies in groups, which I call clusters. I did this because I wanted to keep track of the women I killed. I like to drive by the clusters around the county and think about the women I placed there. I usually used a landmark to remember a cluster and the women I placed there. Sometimes I killed and dumped a woman intending to start a new cluster and never return because I thought I might get caught putting more women there. As Gary Ridgway is still alive, he is still consulted when missing persons cases are still trying to be solved. It's possible that Ridgway is concerned about his legacy. During the interviews, he complained that everyone knows about Ted Bundy, but not about the Green River Killer. It's possible he wants to pad his stats as the country's worst serial killer. In his words, he says, I want to prove them wrong. I want to prove there's 80 bodies out there, or 85, or whatever. He's not happy with only being convicted of now 49 murders. As one of the largest investigative teams in the history of the United States, the Green River Homicides team had a collection of approximately 400,000 pages of documents, 15,000 photographs, 500 audio tapes, and 170 videotapes. This was one of the biggest investigations in the history of the United States. And now I'm going to play for you a clip from the sentencing of Gary Ridgway.
2: Mr. Ridgway, how do you plead to the charge of aggravated murder in the first degree, as charged in count 1, for the death of of Wendy Lee Caulfield. Guilty. How do you plead to the charge of aggravated murder in the first degree as charge in count two? Guilty. Guilty. Guilty.
1: It's like he didn't have any remorse at all for what he had done. You know, he'd killed so many people he didn't remember who they were, what they looked like. I just couldn't believe that somebody could kill all those people and not remember.
0: Neither could the angry relatives of his victims who were invited to speak in court when Ridgway was sentenced to life without parole on December 18th, 2003.
1: You had said your memory when it comes to all of the women you took was gone. Our memory is not. In your words, you said that they didn't mean anything to you but she meant everything to us. She was a mother, she was a wife, she was a sister and we miss her.
0: Gary Ridgway sat there stone-faced as victims' relatives damned him and mocked him.
1: He's an animal. I wish for him to have a long-suffering, cruel death. He's gonna go to hell, and that's where he belongs.
0: But then the emotionless facade finally cracked when the father of one of his victims appeared to surprise him with a dose of human kindness.
2: Mr. Ridgway, um... There are people here that hate you. I'm not one of them. You've you've made it difficult to live up to what I believe, and that is what God says to do, and that's to forgive. You are
0: forgiven, sir. In closing, you've now heard of the deadliest serial killer in American history. You've heard messages from his victims' families, including the father who forgave him, and you've heard emotion from the serial killer himself. In conclusion, I have one question to ask of the victims' families. You could hear their heartbreak in their speeches. They've lost loved ones. They've lost mothers, they've lost sisters, they've lost wives, girlfriends. Now, contract that with the victims that Gary Ridgway targeted. He targeted prostitutes. He targeted runaways, drug addicts. The question I leave you with is, while the family members profess to have lost loved ones, where was that love to keep them off the streets? This has been... The Derek Izzy Show. Thank you for listening. Thanks again to our sponsors. Go to audibletrial.com Derek. And instead of our normal outro song, we have a song by the band Micah called Don't Say You're Sorry.
1: Is there something that I'm missing?